You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Now as we approach Matthew chapter 22, we have to keep in mind that we are post the triumphal entry, that Jesus is in the final week where he is going to be betrayed, uh, arrested, go through an illegal trial, crucified, and then ultimately rise from the dead. And in that last moment, Jesus has this burst of teaching and uh, warning, really, in so many ways. Some of it is designed for his disciples, as we'll see when we get to chapter uh, 24. Jesus is going to speak to his disciples concerning the last days, the end times, the signs of his coming. So private conversations with his disciples. You could go to John and discover a lengthy conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the night of his actual betrayal. But many of his conversations that are recorded for us here in Matthew and in the other Gospels relate not just to his disciples, but are rebukes and warnings to the crowds and also the religious leaders concerning the Christ. And they question him and he responds to them. And that's what we have here in Matthew chapter 22. Before they have a chance to question him in this chapter, he gives them a parable of intense warning. It says in verse 1, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, this is, of course, a parable. And in this parable, the king would be the father, the son would be Jesus. And sent his servants, verse 3, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now, as we've already seen, in one sense, these servants are simply prophets from the past who sent out those invitations concerning the Messiah. But in another sense, I think, will be the church going out into all the world, broadcasting that gospel message, beginning with the apostles in Jerusalem and extending out even into our era. These servants go and invite to the wedding feast all who were invited, but they, verse 3, would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my Fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and bur burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now in one sense, you see something beautiful in this parable from Jesus. 
you see, first of all, the persistence of God. Notice that the initial invitation went out and the invitation was rejected. But then the father or the king said, listen, go back out to those who have been invited and re-invite them to explain to them that this is the wedding feast. It's time for them to gather but they would not. I think this speaks of the persistence of God towards the people that he has chosen and invited and specifically keeping it in the context of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 22, his invitation to the Jewish people to receive the Lord. Now, I believe personally that that persistence will continue on until the very end. And that at the end of this age, there will be a time where the Lord puts his attention once again upon the nation of Israel. And I believe that many of them in the future will receive that great invitation. They'll hear it, they'll reply to it, and they'll come to that great wedding feast to enjoy the Lord eternally. But here, notice the response. When those servants went out, and those servants, again, as I said, could picture the prophets, the apostles, various evangelists throughout the age, notice that their response was that some paid no attention, verse 5, and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, and others seized them, persecuted them, and killed them. And of course, this is a perfect picture of the history there in Israel. There were those who, when the prophets came and spoke of the Messiah, invited them to that future wedding supper. There were those who were just too busy. They had stuff going on. They had the earthly temporal concerns that they were wrapped up in. But then you had others who responded not just passively, they responded aggressively and persecuted and beat and sometimes killed these messengers. And of course, we live in an era where Jesus promised the same, that there would be persecution that comes at times as a result of preaching the gospel. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5 that we are to celebrate in one sense, rejoice in one sense when we are persecuted for his name's sake. And so notice here in Jesus's parable what the king does. He tells his servants to go out to the highways and the byways and invite everyone to come to the wedding feast. And I love the phrase there in verse 9, as many as you find. And this, of course, is a picture of the Gentile era that we are in, the time of the Gentiles where the invitation extends throughout the world. And what a perfect picture of what occurred in the book of Acts. There in Jerusalem, they prayed and they waited, a small group of 120 of them. They asked the Lord to bless them. He met them with his Holy Spirit. They then preached the gospel in Judea, that region. People began to come to the Lord in Jerusalem and in that region. But eventually a moment came where People who were not living like Jews began to give their lives to the Lord. Even if they had a Jewish heritage, people like the Hellenists. But one day, Peter received a call from the Lord 
to go to the household of a man named Cornelius and preach the gospel to that man, a Gentile man with his Gentile friends. And they believed and the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they truly received the Lord. And the gospel was now opened up to the Gentile world. God would need a great messenger for that Gentile world. And so Paul, a man who is previously named Saul, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the early church, was knocked to the ground on the road to Damascus, saw a bright light, said, Who are you? He said, Saul, Saul, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And the Lord immediately revealed to Paul when he went to Damascus that he would be a voice to the Gentile world. And that, of course, is what the second half of the book of Acts is all about. In Acts 15, they, at the Jerusalem Council, they make great decisions so that the gospel would not be impeded amongst the Gentile world, but could accelerate amongst them. And Paul and his message and his band of missionaries went out and spread the wonderful gospel message to the Gentile world. They went out to find as many as they could. And we, of course, live in a time where we are called to preach the gospel to as many as we can find. We're to live with wisdom. We're to speak with grace. But we are to be a gospel-preaching people. We live in a as-many-as-you-can-find era. Uh, God is in the business of inviting as many as possible during this time. Now, Jesus continues this parable in verse 11 when he said, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, Jesus' parable takes a serious turn at this particular moment. I think we have in the first part of the parable a general picture of the unfolding of the gospel message to the Gentile world. But in the second part of this parable, we're looking at one individual specifically, the fate of one man. It's one thing to think of large groups of people, but when it comes to salvation, you have to think individually. And this one man did not have the proper attire. He was not clothed with the wedding garments that the king had given out. Now, this, of course, pictures the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. The only way that a person is able to be saved is by believing in the gift of Jesus Christ, the righteous, paying the penalty for their sin on a Roman cross. When a person believes that Jesus has died for them and was buried for them and rose from the dead for them and they believe and then subsequently they say, I want to be baptized as a sign of what has already occurred inside of my heart. I am saved. I am redeemed. And they make that declaration. They are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. But if they try to get the benefits of the wedding feast without the proper attire, without the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness, just as Abraham believed God and it was imputed 
to him for righteousness. So we must believe in the gospel message. And the imputed righteousness of Christ gets us the marriage supper, gets us this great blessing. This man was cast into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. Hell here is described as a place that is outside rather than inside, a place that is dark rather than light, a, a place that is weeping rather than joyful, a place that is full of gnashing of teeth, emptiness and agony and regret rather than fullness and gladness and satisfaction and joy. Now in verse 15, Jesus then is questioned. It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. So here we have once again, the Pharisees coming together with a strange group for them to come together with the Herodians. Now the Herodians uh, were a fairly new group. They had been created really after uh, the birth of Jesus and were mostly a political kind of group. They professed the Jewish religion, but they worshiped idols as well and behaved like secularists, but they were highly political. They embraced the Roman government without objection. And so this group would be normally at odds with the Pharisees who would have rejected in, uh, at least in an outer form, idolatry, even though inwardly they were idolaters. They would have rejected the Roman government and they would have rejected that sort of secularist kind of lifestyle that the Herodians live. But these two came together. They both had a common enemy in Jesus for different reasons, but they both wanted to see Jesus removed from the scene. And so they thought that they could perhaps come together and entangle Jesus in his words. Listen, there is one that you will never entangle in his words, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so they come together and they attempt to flatter Jesus. They attempt to use flattery to uh, trap him. When they say, we know you're true. You teach the way of God truthfully and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, verse 17, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this was a tricky question for them to ask Jesus. First of all, the Herodians had no problem paying taxes to Caesar. The Pharisees did. But they knew that Jesus' public answer would do one of two things. If he said, we should not be paying taxes to Caesar. This is outrageous that we are under his rule, under his thumb. Then the people would be upset with him and say, listen, are, are you not the Messiah? You're called to drive out the Romans if you're truly the Messiah. How could you say such a thing? This is unjust, this world that we're living in. But 
if he were to say, we have got to get rid of the Romans as quickly as possible. We should not be paying taxes to the Romans. Then the Roman government would catch word of it and hear of this man who was leading a rebellion. And history was quite clear as to what the Roman government would do with those who were trying to, elite, to lead some kind of rebellion. And so they thought they could trap Jesus with either one of his answers. But Jesus, aware of their malice, verse 18, said, Why, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Jesus' response is absolutely beautiful. He says to them, Hey, uh, why are you trying to test me? He, in other words, he puts it out there for all of the people to hear. This is simply a test. These men are trying to trap me in my words. He announces it boldly for everyone to hear. Then he says, bring me a coin, a denarius. He holds up the coin and says, whose image is on this coin? The Pharisees even are forced to confess. Oh, that's, that's Caesar's image. In other words, we are using this man's monetary system. By using his monetary system, we're using his government, we're using his infrastructure. We have submitted ourselves to it. We are buying and selling and spending with his money, with inside of this system. And then Jesus gave a beautiful answer. Rather than weighing in on the politics of it, he said, you should give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But make sure you give to the Lord what is the Lord's. Make sure that you really fully obey him. In other words, these people were concerned with the payment to Caesar. Jesus is looking at them and saying, listen, you ought to be more concerned about your payment to God. You think you're, you're worried about paying Caesar? Well, you should be more concerned about your great debt to the Lord. Render to God the things that are God's. And obviously, they were not fulfilling that commandment from the Lord. And so when they heard it, they marveled and left him and went away. Now, verse 23, it says, The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, this is a fascinating little section and a fascinating question that the Sadducees now are asking of Jesus. We learn a little bit about the Sadducees in verse 23 when it says that the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. Now, this group, these are a group of guys, the Sadducees, who were in great power in that era. And who, you know, basically operated as secularists. They said that they believed in the first five books of Moses and uh, that alone as God's word. 
and that they also did not believe in the supernatural, which would preclude them from believing in the resurrection from the dead. So these Sadducees come to Jesus and they have a, a question and they're going to use scripture here to attempt to trap Jesus. Part of the scripture that they held to Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 through 10, uh, you know, about a man who uh, is supposed to, if his brother uh, is married, has his household, his inheritance, but does not have uh, an heir and dies if his wife is able, then they are to his brothers to then take his brother's wife, go into her, have a child with her. And that child will be uh, their child, of course, but will be the uh, heir of his bro deceased brother's uh, land and all of that so that the uh, heritage could persist throughout the generations in the nation of Israel. So these guys come and they say, okay, that's what the word said. That's what Moses wrote. And then in verse 25, they say, now there were seven brothers among us. They act like this is something that actually occurred, but it's so outrageous. It's easy to see that they are contriving this story. The first married and died and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And this is how so many of these types of arguments go. They're so ridiculous sounding. And, you know, questions like, can God make a rock that is so big he can't lift it? Kinds of questions. And here, this is just so ridiculous and they throw it out there to Jesus in order to mock the idea of the resurrection. Hey, listen, in the resurrection, this lady is going to have to share seven husbands because she had seven men that were her husband in this life. Therefore, their conclusion was the resurrection, the idea of life after death is absolutely ridiculous. And of course, we live in an era when many people doubt the reality of life after death and mock it as if it is something ridiculous. But Jesus answered verse 29. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus rebukes these men for two things. Number one, they don't know the scriptures. They're abusing them. They're twisting them. And they claim to only believe part of the scriptures rather than all of the old testament just the first five books but even that they don't even believe all that well secondly he rebukes them because they do not know the power of god is there anything too hard for the lord understanding and knowing the power of god the ability of god the strength of god is crucial for a believer he said, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, this is fascinating because Jesus announces a little bit of what eternity is like. He says, listen, in heaven, they're, they're not going to have marriages and be given in marriage. It's unlike here on earth. They'll be like the angels. Now, uh, I don't know that this gives us our final word on this particular subject. For a husband and wife in all of eternity, will there be a special kind of relationship? Will there be some kind of 
understanding and knowledge that there's a closer connection there? I would imagine so. We'll have to find out once we get there. But Jesus is saying here, it's not typical to what you are thinking of. It's not marriage like it occurs here on earth. They'll be like the angels. They won't be married or given in marriage. He says, and as, verse 31, for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus announces to them, God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, but then, you know, he died, and so no longer. I was the God of Isaac, or I was the God of Jacob. He says, no, I am. They're all dead as I'm speaking it, but they're all alive as I'm speaking it as well. Therefore, I am their God. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now in reading Mark's gospel, it appears that there's a chance that this lawyer was not asking this question maliciously. But here in Matthew, it appears that there was at least a bit of testing that was going on here. And Jesus announced to him that the greatest commandment was to love God, to love God with everything within you, to love God. This is the privilege of mankind to love God, to be devoted to God. And I find that in this world, there is a great attack and war against our love for God. You remember what Paul said about his friend Demas. He said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. There is a love inside of our lives and hearts, and our love must be devoted and directed towards God. And secondly, toward one another to love our neighbor as we already currently love God ourselves. We don't need to learn how to love ourselves. We need to learn how to love God. We need to learn how to love our neighbor. And the reality is, is that when a person sets their heart, their mind upon this kind of love and loves God supremely, it's not so much about what we do not do. We just do this and devote ourselves to loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we really don't need many commandments. That's why Jesus said on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I would encourage you to be a lover of God, to keep yourself firm in the love of God, passionately serve God. Don't allow anything into your life that would deaden your desire, your taste for, your love for God. Love the Lord with everything inside of you. It is the greatest thing a human being can do. Now verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So the tables are turned, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, 
to him, the son of David. And of course, this was the promise from the Old Testament. David said, God, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, David, I will build you a house. I will give you a descendant to sit on the throne forever. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. So they say the son of David. But Jesus said to them, verse 43, how is it then that David in the spirit, quoting from Psalm 110, calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And Jesus was pointing out the eternal nature of the one who, who would descend from David's loins to be the Messiah. He was pre-existent eternally. That's why David referred to someone who would be his son as his Lord. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.